then I think in terms of law enforcement, for in terms of selection of police officers, I would like to see them give police officers the Milan clinical multi-axial inventory. Okay. And if anybody has an elevated score on narcissism, they should be denied. They should not be allowed to be a police officer. You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. Welcome back to Bipolar Recorder. I am your host, Hunter Keegan, and today we have a very special installment for the series. I know that I say that a lot, but I am particularly hyped up about today's episode because it features our first expert guest. His name is Dr. David Weimer. Dr. Weimer holds a PhD and has worked as a psychologist for over 20 years. Currently, he teaches courses on abnormal psychology at Penn State University. As I've mentioned a few times on this show, I hold a bachelor's degree in psychology from Penn State, and Dr. Weimer was actually one of my professors while I was attending school there. In this installment, we talk a bit about our personal connection and the unique way that we met, but primarily, we focus on recognizing the importance of mental health when it comes to young adults, especially college students. We also talk about Dr. Weimer's personal, lived experiences with depression and trauma recovery. This episode is so cool. I cannot tell you how excited I am to share it with you. To have the opportunity to speak with someone who is not only an expert in the field of psychology, but who also taught at the university while I was attending there and taught a class that I was enrolled in was just absolutely incredible. I do have a quick content warning for you. At a couple of points in this installment, Dr. Weimer briefly references trauma that he himself experienced as a child growing up in an abusive household. He does not go into any sort of graphic detail, but this subject matter may be uncomfortable for some listeners, so I'm just pointing that out. As always, we want to make sure everyone's feeling safe on these streets. Let's dive in. Today I am joined by our first expert guest, Dr. David Weimer. Dr. Weimer is a professor at Penn State University where he teaches advanced abnormal psychology and conducts scholarly research. He holds a PhD and is a licensed psychologist. He is also a veteran first lieutenant of the US Army Medical Service Corps Reserves and even moonlights as a science fiction and fantasy author. I met Dr. Weimer in fall of 2014 
while I was enrolled in one of his abnormal psych courses at Penn State, and we'll certainly talk a bit more about that later. But for now, Dr. Weimer, I just wanted to pass it over to you for a second and start with a very general question, which is, what exactly is abnormal psychology? Well, I, I teach two versions of abnormal at Penn State. I teach Psych 470, which I believe you had with me, Advanced Abnormal. And I That's actually correct. created the uh, the World Campus version of Psych 270, Intro to Abnormal. So, um, but anyway, so chapter one of the course is all about that. What is abnormal, right? And there's many different there's many different uh, perspectives and so forth. Is is it statistically abnormal? Somebody with an IQ of 140 can technically be considered abnormal because their IQ is statistically more than two standard deviations above the mean. So there's many things considered. Uh, I, I actually am not, a, even though I teach the class called abnormal, I'm not a huge fan of the word. Sure. If it was up to, if it was up to me, I would call the course psychopathology, advanced okay. psychopathology and intro to psychopathology. Mm -hmm. But um, basically you can consider something or someone abnormal, I think, uh, based on like the global assessment of functioning scale mm -hmm. for, for, for two things. If there's, uh, distress, right? An excessive amount of distress or life functioning issues, mm -hmm. right? If somebody has problems in life functioning. And in my classes, I talk about four different areas of life functioning. There's relationships, there's academic functioning, if applicable, career functioning, if applicable, and then just daily tasks. Like, can the person groom themselves? Can they drive a car? Can they feed themselves? Things like that. So if somebody um, has problems with functioning in, in those areas, then it, I think somebody's issues can be considered abnormal. Fantastic breakdown. Now, you mentioned something, I, I believe you said global functioning scale. Global assessment of functioning, yeah. Global you should assessment. remember that from Psych 470. Ah. <laughs> oh, man, 2014 was a mm -hmm. long time ago. I know, I know. <laughs> um, global assessment of functioning scale. Could you explain a little bit more about that? I, um, yeah. Could you refresh my memory from your class? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's actually no longer in the DSM. Hey, it's Hunter with a quick point of clarification for anyone who's not familiar with the DSM. The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and it's used by psychologists and psychiatrists to diagnose and categorize different types of mental health conditions. There was previously the DSM-4, but in 2013, the American Psychiatric Association released an updated version called the DSM-5. All right, back to the show. But uh, it was in the okay. DSM-4, but uh, they, they took it out, but I still think it's important. So it's basically, it goes from zero to 100, zero being not enough information. Then there's one to 100. And it's just uh, with higher being more functioning, right? So uh, you can probably just Google, go on PDF and find global, global assessment of functioning. But it's basically just a measure of how well somebody's functioning. And uh, there, there's two things, like I said before, there's how well do you function in terms of those areas that I talked about before? And also how much distress do you experience? How much symptomology do you experience? Mm. So symptomology and functioning. And usually what I tell my students is go with whatever one is worse. So if somebody's mm -hmm. functioning okay, but they have really, really bad symptoms, let's say severe OCD, and to the point in which they can't leave their house, 
then their functioning score will be based on the OCD symptomology. You know, but if somebody doesn't have any symptomology, but their life functioning is really, really bad, for example, they're homeless, mm. um, then you would you give the functioning based on that. Does that make sense? Absolutely makes sense. Yeah. And thank you for that concise breakdown. I really appreciate it. Okay, good. So let me ask you on a just broad level, going back, what got you interested in psychology in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question, Hunter. So uh, a couple of different things. There's the academic side and then the personal side, right? I'm sure everybody sure. who goes into psychology has a kind of a personal reason. And then there's the academic reason. So the academic reason is um, I at Council Rock High School, I'm from Newtown, Pennsylvania, originally. And I went to a high school called Council Rock, which I'm very fortunate. It's one of the best high schools in Pennsylvania. I'm very fortunate to have gone there. And I had a teacher um, my senior year of high school named Mrs. Raberman, and I had her for psychology. So I took psychology in high school, nice. and I ended up just really liking it. And um, my favorite thing, I remember my favorite thing about that class was when I learned about Carl Jung's theories. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So that was something that really got me very interested. And I'd actually just taught about Carl Jung a week ago in my personality class. Yeah. So, And then when I started at Penn State Abington, it was called Penn State Ogons at the time when I went there. This was the fall of 1994. So I started at Penn State Abington and I did not want to be undecided. So I just picked psychology as a major kind of out of the blue. Sure. And here I am, you know, many, many years later, still doing it. Uh, the uh, the personal side is basically uh, just to be completely uh, honest and open. It's uh, I just had a very traumatic childhood. So growing up, my my mother um, has borderline personality disorder, and my dad is a narcissist. So so they had a pretty they had a pretty explosive relationship, mm -hmm. and uh, there was like pretty severe there was pretty severe domestic abuse in my house. Maybe in the future, if you ever have me on again someday, I mean, I could talk more detail about that, about my traumatic childhood. Mm -hmm. Basically, um, when I was a kid, I, I personally knew every local police officer because they were over my house so many times. And yeah. the walls of my house looked like pieces of Swiss cheese uh, from people smashing them in and stuff during fights. Um, and so, I mean, I could go on and on and on. But anyway, so I've, I have a lot of mental health problems from that. Also, mental health problems run in my family. And... Um, so, for example, my cousin, who's very open about things, has bipolar one. My cousin Chris. Oh, cool! Oh, uh, not cool. <laughs> well, that, but I mean, yeah, relevant. Somebody to I me. care about quite a bit. Abs and, absolutely. Uh, you know, he's very open about about his stuff. And uh, anyway, so but I, I was I saw a psychologist when I was in high school, when I was ex or maybe even later toward junior high, and um, I don't know specifically what he diagnosed me with, but. I'm pretty sure I struggled with depression in high school mostly. Okay. So I struggled with depression in high school and um, he, he couldn't prescribe, but he sent me to a psychiatrist and he uh, put me on Prozac when I was in high school. Okay. And um, I'm actually on Prozac again, ever since um, now, ever since COVID. But uh, if, if it wasn't for Prozac, I'd probably be dead. Wow. I'd probably be dead nowadays because I was extremely depressed when I was a teenager, um, had uh, lots of suicidality and so forth, but it just going on Prozac and then getting away from my toxic family and going away to college. So uh, my first year of year college was horrible because I commuted, mm. but I eventually went to Ithaca College and getting away from my family was the best possible thing I could do. You know, my immediate family. I love my aunts and uncles, cousins, but my parents are a train wreck, right? So they're, the, they're a major reason why I have uh, you know, mental health problems and so forth. But anyway, so that's basically it. So I just chose psychology and as a college major 
And I ended up being really, really good at it. And just, it was perfect for me. Wow. That's, uh, that's really interesting that you have that combined experience and knowledge-based draw from as yeah. a professional, as what you're currently doing. Yeah. Something that comes to mind for me when I hear individuals like yourself who are really experts in the field, what's it like working with a psychiatrist or therapist when you yourself are already right. very up to speed on everything? Do you second guess them at all ever? Does that happen? When I was a kid, I had good experiences. But of course, now I'm an adult. I have a PhD in psychology. And the last few therapists I've seen have been kind of kind of terrible. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, it's, um, first of all, it's, I made the mistake of using Penn State's uh, employee uh, employee assistance program, and they sent me basically to a bunch of quacks who have no idea what the heck they're doing. But uh, they give you five free sessions. The people watching this podcast or listening to it probably don't know what Penn State's employee assistance program is. But if you're if an employee is struggling with mental health, you get five free sessions, right? And so I called the Penn State employee assistance program, and the only person who had an opening was some guy 45 minutes away over in Lewis, Lewistown. Well, I've never been to Lewistown before. Um, so I went over there during, a, you know, the day after an ice storm. And I drove all the way to Lewistown. And um, he just wanted to talk about my my diet, my diet. And he thought if I changed my diet, then my depression would go away, basically. And so the, the nice man, but he just had absolutely no idea what he was doing. And he, he you know, in terms of treating mental illness and so forth. So um, it's it is it is hard, you know. I think it's harder for for somebody who is a professional psychologist to find good treatment because I can't help being critical, you know. What I, mean? <laughs> I can't help kind of being. But um, you know, I have seen people who are very good. I saw a woman in Akron, Ohio, when I was in graduate school, who who was very helpful and very good. But the thing, first of all, I think the mental health. You you go into this a little bit in your book, you know. Mm -hmm. the, the mental health system is a train wreck. Mm -hmm. especially here in center center county um and i mean i could go on and on about this but it's it, it was very very hard for me to find a good therapist to the point in which i just kind of gave up and now i'm just on meds i'm just using meds and checking in with my primary care physician you know mm. so i just i talk to my primary care physician kind of and okay. that's what i do basically interesting so you uh you prefer to work with the primary care physician rather than a psychiatrist at this point, just because I've had so much bad luck. I mean, the last three or four yeah. people I've seen, I saw this one dude, he did therapy in shorts and bare feet. And he like, oh, you know, <laughs> all he all he did was talk about himself the whole time. Yeah. And his history of, you know, it's just, uh, I've just had so many bad experiences that I've kind of just given up. I know that sounds terrible, but I've just given up on finding a good therapist. Yeah, you know, it's relatable. I went through a phase for a few years where I really needed to be in with a therapist, not just a psychiatrist, because as someone with bipolar type one, I think you exactly. personally, you really need that combination of medication Definitely. and therapy. Yeah. So I was getting really discouraged because, you know, I was having depressive episodes and I did have a therapist, but I couldn't talk to her because it was like you were describing. She would only talk about herself. It wasn't a dialogue. It was, it felt as if I was talking at a wall and kind of just venting and complaining. And that's not beneficial. So let me you ask you. You validated. Exactly. You want to be heard, you know, yeah. you, you want to be, you be validated. Listened to. Hearing and listening mm -hmm. are different things. Listening True. is deeper than hearing. 
Definitely. Absolutely. So what would you say, I don't know, the, the top one to three most important qualities of a good therapist are? Number one to me being non-judgmental. Yes. Being non-judgmental. And um, number two would be being a good listener, which not being a non being non-judgmental is part of that. And um, I think the non-judgmental is by far the, the biggest. And then um, just having just kind of just knowing what you're doing, knowing the nuts and bolts of therapy, knowing evidence-based treatments, you know, like for example, if you see somebody for obsessive compulsive disorder, do you know, uh, um, exposure and response prevention. Do you have training in that? So mm. the biggest thing is being non-judgmental, and then just kind of having a knowledge base beyond beyond that. Just having a knowledge base of of knowing what to do to effectively treat certain disorders, right? Because I think the relationships the most important thing. Relationship building, mm-hmm. but know, knowing techniques and knowing um, interventions is important too. You know, you can't just do all nothing but relationship stuff for many. Uh, mental health issues you know what i mean yeah in my personal opinion i think that it's really important to have a good personality fit with your therapist too yeah definitely you know like i i'm working i've been working with the same therapist for about the last four years now and she's just been fantastic because i can tell that she you know that we click we're into similar Uh things we listen to the similar music like whatever And it's just been like a night and day difference. And it's helped me so much, not just with bipolar disorder, but with my comorbid conditions. Um, I also live with OCD and ADHD, you know, so I, I agree with you. I think those are all awesome points. Now let's transition a little bit to Penn State. Penn State is where I met you. Penn State is where I got my bachelor's degree. Uh, I spent three and a half years there. Actually, I graduated a little bit early. Okay. Um, <laughs> I did that at Ithaca College to a semester early. It's cool. Yeah, it gets you out a little bit quicker. But um, I uh, I wanted to ask you, like, when I was a student at Penn State with burgeoning undiagnosed mental illness, I felt very alone. I felt like I was in an ocean and I didn't know what resources were really available. I didn't realize how severe my symptoms were getting. Yeah, were you aware of CAPS? CAPS, which Dr. Weimer just mentioned there, is Counseling and Psychological Services. It's a mental health resource center for Penn State students that is well-intended and does good work, but can only do so much due to resource constraints. And we'll discuss that with Dr. Weimer in just a second. I was aware of CAPS, and as a matter of fact, I I did go to CAPS, and you know what I found there was that they were having, like, graduate students doing the counseling sessions, and they also required them to be on video so that the yeah, student yeah. could get like their credit hours or whatever. Yeah, like um, I did that in an Akron as well. Yeah, and it was just, it was very strange to me, and I... 
tried to be as transparent as I could, but I was like, I don't know if this, and here's, you know, maybe some paranoia happening too. I'm like, will a word about this get back to the university? Will I get kicked out of school if I start talking about some of this illegal activity I'm involved with, some of this dangerous behavior I'm involved with? So anyhow, my question for you is right now, how effectively is Penn State's big school culture supporting mental health among students? Are there more resources now? Is it? I think um, I think they're they're definitely committed to uh, making things as best as possible. But I think it's just a numbers game. Mm-hmm. You know, there's what fifty five thousand students at Penn State, something like that. It's just a numbers game. And uh, so I'll just talk a little bit about my experience. So I worked at the counseling center part time, one day a week, uh, maybe half a day a week, for about seven or eight years. And, you know, I had a very wonderful experience there. Every they, They're really hard workers there. People are very committed. The problem is it's just it's one floor of the health building. And there's, you know, tons and there's just so much demand for services that they're just completely overwhelmed. And yeah. um, when I was there, there was, I think, a 10-session limit. I'm, it's probably different now. I haven't been there in three or four years. Since yeah. COVID, it's probably the demand for services is just through the roof. So I think it's just, once again, just a raw numbers game. I think people have good intentions. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there are outreaches and, and stuff like that. I think students are aware. It's just, there's just just too many students. And there's just, you know, just not enough therapists to go around. And uh, I think in a perfect world, I think they should have a new building, an entire building for the counseling center, rather than yeah. just one floor of the health building. They just don't have enough raw office space. Wow. You know, they just don't have enough physical office space. I think that's just a huge challenge but um yeah and and then in terms of the community in the area everybody i know who is a, a private in private practice is completely full completely booked has a long waiting list so it's just they're just flat out just aren't enough therapists in the area you know and um, yeah. i mean there's so many but one barrier is insurance companies and uh, t- getting people onto their 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 panels or whatever and and so forth. And so, I mean, there's a lot of barriers to that, but there's just just a huge demand for just more practitioners, you know. And another thing is the stigma of seeking help is so much lower now than it was, even in 2014 when you were mm. at Penn State. So, I mean, the generation that's in college now is very much, I mean, uh, interested in mental health and, and so forth and, and very open to seeking help. So, once again, that kind of adds to the demand for services. So again, it's a question of just good intentions, but just being completely overwhelmed by just an incredibly high demand for services. I read something, I believe, from the NIMH that indicated uh, 10 to 30 percent of adults aged like 18 to 25 encounter diagnosable forms of mental illness each year. I'm so yeah, yeah. So like 10 to 30 percent of like. 55,000. That's a lot of people. Like I I can't do the mental math, but it's a lot, right? And COVID, I mean, increased the rate of anxiety in particular, pretty to a, to a large extent. Mm -hmm. There's far more, I mean, first people are more aware of it. And also I think there's legitimately more anxiety in society now. There's just more people with anxiety disorders ever since COVID. I've really felt that way too, especially over the last year and a half. I've noticed a lot of my friends and peers who also live with serious mental illness have been going through episodes and it's 
interesting because it seems like, and and this is totally subjective. I, I don't think there's research supporting this or anything, but I've just noticed within my friend groups, it seems as if people start having episodes around the same periods of time. Really? So just a correlation I've noticed, um, yeah, yeah. probably because we're, you know, watching similar things from similar yeah. socioeconomic backgrounds, yeah. whatever. But I did want to go back for a moment and just ask, what would you say is the most important thing for college students to understand about maintaining strong mental health? Do you think that's something that, you know, a 19-year-old Penn State student is thinking needs to be taken seriously? Oh, it, def it definitely needs to be taken seriously. Um in my time working with college students, I've worked with college students as a clinician at Penn State, at the University of Akron, at a Grand Valley State University. So three different institutions. I've noticed lots of themes. Um, sleep hygiene is a big issue. Yeah. <laughs> college students, have, you know, they're, they're basically nocturnal and then they get up for a 9 a.m. class. And so college students have pretty horrible sleep habits. That's a very common thing that I worked on with my um, clients. Time management and prioritization skills are things that I worked on quite a bit with my clients. You'd be amazed at the number of people who had difficulty simply just managing their schedule and, you know, um, what schoolwork to do when, when to turn stuff in. So just the nuts and bolts of just managing a schedule and time management and prioritizing. I've worked with many, many students on that. Um, and then another thing, I think, especially contemporary college students are just kind of in their head too much. They think too much. <laughs> Right. Many of my students and, I'm, you know, we have class discussions about this all the time, including the other day in my classes. And um, students just they're, they're pretty open about how they just are in their head too much. I'm, I always ask my class, how many of you would like to be able to just shut your brain off for five minutes? And everybody raises their hand. Uh -huh. right? So people are just in their head too much. And um, just I think that's another issue, too. So how to have, you know, more. Uh, what's the what's the word, you know, more rational thinking habits and things like that. And one thing I, I teach uh, my my clients and students quite a bit is um, Albert Ellis's rational emotive behavior therapy, the ABCDE model. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but A is the activating event, which would be some kind of trigger. In class, I use the example of getting a, a rejection letter from a job or a graduate school. So that rejection letter is neutral. How you respond to it with your mind is, sub is subjective and we have control over that, right? You can respond to it in a rational, productive way or an irrational, self-defeating way, right? And so just, I think it's important for, for uh, college students who struggle with mental health to just think about thinking, you know, think about how they think about things and stand back and, and look objectively, examine objectively about how they navigate their world cognitively, if that makes sense, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, many times people are artificially unfair to themselves. They set unrealistic goals. Mm -hmm. You know, that's another thing is people have unrealistic expectations and unrealistic goals. So you don't want to have low goals, you know, but you want to have high but realistic goals. I think that's another important thing for college students nowadays. For example, Hunter, um, I write tons and tons and tons of recommendation letters. I've talked to many, I, I have, I've had many students over the years who are, you know, told by their parents for years and years and years that they're the, the greatest human being alive or whatever, they're kind of spoiled. And they think they can get into Harvard and Yale with, you know, a 2.2 GPA, right? 
you're not going to get into a PhD program at an Ivy League school with a 2.2 GPA. So yeah. a big thing that I do is I just feel like I burst people's bubbles all the time because so many college students have unrealistic expectations, you know, mm. so that's another thing. Interesting. So when it comes to serious mental illness, um, there are, I don't want to generalize too much. So let me just speak to bipolar disorder. Bipolar sure. disorder tends to manifest between what, like ages like 18 to 22-ish? Uh, it, it depends, really. Depends. Yeah. So, okay. So let's say if regardless of age, like 12, whatever, 12 years old, 65 years old, it, let's say someone's encountering a condition like bipolar disorder for the first time. What do you think? Uh, in, someone, in themself? In themselves. Yes. Yeah, in yeah. themselves. What do you think are like the biggest red flags that one should watch out for, or that would be a key indicator that something is going seriously wrong? Yep. So Hunter, what I look for as a clinician is functioning drop-off. So like, for example, working with college students, if a student is normally an A, B student, and now they're getting C's and D's, that's an indicator something could be going on. If somebody has never gotten in fights before, has never had legal problems before, and suddenly they're getting in fights, or if somebody's never had a problem with gambling, I had a, I had a bipolar client once who went and got racked up $10,000 in gambling debt in one weekend during a manic episode, you know? Yeah. So um, are people suddenly having money problems, whereas they didn't have money problems before? So I always look at life functioning. I know I've mentioned that as kind of a common thread of this conversation today. But if if their functioning was here and now it's here and there's you know areas in which it's dropping off, that's one thing. Uh, something else, just behavior changes. Uh, like with schizophrenia, the prodromal phase of schizophrenia involves the, the kind of the beginning stage before the active psychotic break involves behavior changes so if somebody starts acting strange whereas they didn't act strange before now a thing is with really severe mental illness people tend to lack self-awareness right so your people are normally going to observe changes in loved ones roommates mm -hmm. friends something like that so many times like i've had many schizophrenic clients the schizophrenic clients i've worried about the most are the ones who think that that they're you know they're they're completely uh, believe all their 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 auditory hallucinations and things. They think that Satan is actually talking to them, and 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 so. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's those are the people. So you're asking me a question about becoming aware. The worst cases are people who lack self awareness, you know. But um, another thing I just mentioned auditory hallucinations in really severe mental illness. That's a relatively common symptom. So if somebody starts having auditory hallucinations, that's another sign that you need definitely need to get on some kind of med medication or something. Yeah. The good news is that auditory hallucinations is very treatable with medication. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I I mean I take antipsychotic medication. Um, I uh, for the audience, I have bipolar type one with psychotic features, and when you're having a manic or depressive episode with psychosis, it is kind of similar to what someone with like an active episode of schizophrenia may be experiencing, and those auditory hallucinations are fucking scary dude oh yeah definitely. oh my god like i have had situations well, there's actually a range of them they can be actually comforting in some cases but yeah in the really yeah, worst yeah. cases they're they are scary yeah sometimes it's like you're the best other times it's yeah. like kill yourself and you're like yeah. what yeah. I've, <laughs> like, I've had clients who hear voices telling them to kill people and all mm -hmm. sorts of things you know 
And it doesn't necessarily mean that someone would act on those. It it can be extremely distressing to the person who's having that type of hallucination because they have that dissonance between this is not who I am. This is not, this is, doesn't feel like it's a real part of me. And that's, distressing as well of course yeah and it's distracting too i mean distracting and distressing yeah what would you say the most prevalent myth or misunderstanding about people with serious mental illness would be what's something that really needs to be dispelled right now when it comes to discourse around individuals with mental health conditions um yeah that's an interesting question i thought about this before a couple things one is the myth we talked about this a little bit before the myth that um, people with serious mental illness are are very dangerous, mm-hmm. right? A large now it, they can be dangerous. I've had maybe a handful of clients over the years who I was kind of worried about, mm-hmm. um, but a large, large, large majority of the time they're not dangerous. Yeah, I've worked with ton, in, in community mental health when I was getting licensed. I work with tons of people with schizophrenia. And, you know, I never once felt unsafe in a session with someone with schizophrenia, right? But mm-hmm. so the media wants you to th- want, kind of transmits this this cultural narrative that people with schizophrenia and bipolar are very dangerous people. When, you know, that can be the case in very rare instances, but so can, you know, a person who, without a mental illness just on the street, you know, anybody yeah. can be dangerous. And so um, that's a big myth. Also, just I... I just can't stand Hollywood and Hollywood's portrayal of mental illness, right? Um, Just whenever a student comes up and asks me about like a movie or something like that, I just, it really kind of like, I don't watch movies about mental illness because they usually piss me off, right? (laughs) They usually piss me off. And then um, the the condition that is, it's it's so misunderstood is DID. Mm -hmm. DID, first of all, whenever I'm watching a movie or reading a book and a character has DID, I just Uh, Sorry, just uh, dissociative identity identity disorder. A a lot of people may know that as multiple personality disorder. Yeah, that's what it used to be called. Yeah, Yeah. I'm sorry, I just wanted to clarify for people. Yeah, that's fine. (laughs) So, so yeah, it's just, it's having that portrayed in Hollywood is just such a cliche. And in real life, actual legitimate cases of DID are extremely rare. Yeah, extremely rare. But so there's lots of myths and misconceptions about that, which I can I can consider a serious mental health illness problem. Okay, uh, here's a question that came to mind: What movie do people reference the most when they come to you after class and are like, "Have you seen this?" or "Is this real?" Uh, probably Split. Split. Yeah, yeah. And I <laughs> okay. To be completely honest, I fucking hate that movie. I yeah. Um, yeah, I saw it, but it's um. It's just that movie has taken our in, our you know knowledge of DID back probably about twenty years, mm. but uh, but anyway, that's probably the one people talk about and ask me about the uh, the most. Yeah, I totally agree with you that uh, media and entertainment just completely misses the mark when it comes to serious mental illness a lot. Yeah. People with bipolar disorder, including myself, seem to resonate a bit with silver linings playbook there's a couple of choice scenes overall it's not like a totally accurate depiction of bipolar disorder but there's a couple of choice scenes uh that really do uh speak to me and seem to speak to others but that's a rare case it is rare and it's also a good movie that's well acted and well written that that true true very true bradley cooper kills it in that movie yep and so does jennifer lawrence let's give everyone credit yeah 
here's another question that I had for you. And um, this question might be a little bit wide spanning, but it's something very important that I really wanted to talk to you about. Now, as you know, you, you've read my book. Thank you so much for taking the time to oh, do that. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was uh, great. yeah, man. Well, thank you again. And as you know, I have been forced into inpatient hospitalization and it was really intense. And, you know, even looking back eight, well, let's see, what year is it? I don't know, whatever, seven to 10 years later, I really, really wonder for people like myself who have had really negative inpatient hospitalization or crisis intervention experiences, it can cause distrust within the community yeah, in terms of like i mean i'm a psychologist and i kind of distrust the system because i've had bad experiences yeah, yeah. It, it creates yeah. like animosity against hospitals against healthcare providers against health police insurance companies against health things. insurance companies yeah. yeah so what are some ways that you think communities or local government entities could re-establish or I guess for the first time, establish trust with people who live with mental illness. Um, not, not treating them as just a way to, you know, increase profits for the CEO, you know, and so mm -hmm. treating people as human beings instead of commodities. A right. term I, I recently worked in community mental health uh, before, up until the the pandemic, and then I stopped, and. Um, the, the people referred to our clients or patients as consumers. I hate that term. That's fucked consumers. up. Yeah. yeah. And so just, I don't like thinking about people that way. Um, so, but anyways, I think um, having less turnover at institutions, um, you know, psychiatric hospitals have lots of turnover, right? They're, they're poorly trained, poorly paid, paying people actually well, putting more money into mental illness, you know? Um, so like, for example, I have a former student who actually, I think I'm going to recommend uh, you talk to her about your, about then maybe even have a guest on this podcast. Cause she was, um, she worked at the Meadows for a really long time, but oh, uh, what is, what is the Meadows? Is that a, uh... oh, the, the Meadows is a, a local psychiatric hospital. It's oh, around okay. here. It's, it's near Penn state. It's a psychiatric hospital. Got it. Near, near Penn state. And it's, um, I mean, it's recently, it was featured on Vice News and there's been scandals there and stuff and, mm -hmm. and so forth. But anyway, she said she would make more money at Sheets than as, as, a, as a mental health tech, mm -hmm. right? So so just paying people more, you attract more, you know, um, skilled people into the profession. That's one thing. In this next part of the conversation, Dr. Weimer mentions something that I had never heard of before. It's called the Milan Clinical Multiaxial Inventory, and it's a type of personality assessment that's administered to evaluate individuals' personality traits and propensity for psychopathology. It was originally developed in the late 1960s, but has since then undergone a number of updates, the most recent one being in 2015. And then I think in terms of law enforcement, eliminate law enforcement officers who have narcissistic or antisocial personality disorder. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's a big thing. Um, 
Yeah, I think uh, if for, in terms of selection of police officers, I would like to see them give police officers the Milan Clinical Multiaxial Inventory. Okay. And if anybody has an elevated score on narcissism or antisocial, antisocial being criminal behavior, not shy, right? People misunderstand and misuse the term antisocial. But anyway, if they score high on narcissistic or antisocial, they should be denied. They should not be allowed to be a police officer. Mm -hmm. Because both of those are, are, are involve a lack of empathy, right? Right. So just more empathy, just having more empathy, right? I think that's one of the reasons why I've been a successful therapist and why clients like me and they, they uh, keep coming back. Uh, if they have a relapse, they contact me again and say, you know, they want to see me again. Is mm -hmm. because I think I validate them, <laughs> you know, yeah. I validate them and it's not about the money, mm -hmm. you know, and, and all those things. And so also, also streamlining the insurance process, the paperwork. I mean, paperwork is just absurd. All right. The last time I worked in community mental health, the paperwork was like something from a Monty Python routine. If people get that, I don't know if people know what Monty Python is, but um, like a, like our Saturday Night Live routine, I guess people would get that reference. But, um, but you know, it's just just reducing. Here's an example. The last time I was in community mental health, I was required to have an iPad with me at all times. And I was required to do all of my paperwork on the iPad during the session with the client. So the company valued the iPad and the, the paperwork more than the, than the client, right? Yeah. So I don't believe in doing paperwork right there with the client right in front of you. I don't think that's, it doesn't establish trust. Yeah. And I'm not making eye contact with them. I'm constantly looking at the iPad and eye contact is very important. Yeah. Right? So, um, so I just think we just need to come completely rethink the entire system and make it about empathy and treatment and effective treatments for the right situation, the right person, rather than just about money, right? The, uh, the entire American healthcare system is broken because it's all about profit. It's about the CEO having a bigger yacht. So he, most, most of them are old white men, right? <laughs> having a bigger yacht so he can have bragging rights at his country club. All right. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't be what it's about. Mm -hmm. All right. It should be about, you know, we know that there's tons and tons and tons of evidence. Most mental illnesses are very, very treatable, very, very treatable. And we have the tools. It's just a question of implementing those tools, implementing those interventions in effective ways, right? In effective ways that will not make people defensive and so forth. Yeah. So, yeah, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but <laughs> no, I guess that's I, what this podcast is for. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's absolutely for that. And I was nodding my head so vigorously as you were speaking. My headphones almost came off. I don't know if okay. you noticed. <laughs> yeah. um, so let's talk about people who do have empathy and do want to help individuals around them who may be having some struggles, some trials and tribulations. Yeah. What can the average person do, the average neurotypical person do to help a friend or family member who may be experiencing a mental health crisis or who is possibly at risk of experiencing a mental health crisis? Well, uh, again, validate the person. Um, don't freak out. Don't be judgmental. You know, be non-judgmental. Um, you know, I've, I've had so many clients whose parents are judgmental about medication, about all sorts of other things. Oh, so yeah. just not be judgmental, uh, develop awareness, find legitimate information. And that's one thing, a, a general big picture problem in the, the entire world right now is just finding legitimate information instead of crap information. Yeah. Right? There's just so much crap information out there. 
So having legitimate evidence-based intervention uh, information, and also just knowing about the resources, hotline numbers, like here here in Center County, there's the Center County Can Helpline, um, all sorts of things, just knowing the various resources and so forth. And another thing, if somebody is suicidal, don't let them have access to firearms. Yeah. Access to firearms is a big issue. All right. And, um, you know, if somebody that's, to be completely honest, I struggle with depression. I am on Prozac. I go through suicidal times. That's why I don't own a firearm. You know, <laughs> I have family members who are into hunting and they want me to go hunting with them. They're like, Dave, do you want to buy a shotgun? I'm like, fuck no. <laughs> if I owned a shotgun, I would probably be dead because I go through such serious depression. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, at, at times. And so just just avoiding firearms, keeping people away from firearms, keeping them locked or out of the house and so on. That's another thing. Yeah. And I, I think that's such an important point. And I, I think I, I would just mention from my lived experience and stuff, that concept can also apply to like narcotic medication, like oh, yeah. Klonopin, yeah. like if you, yeah. you know, like overdosing and so forth. Yeah. Like intentional overdoses on Klonopin oh, yeah. or even, you know, like oxy yeah. or even yeah. stuff. Can you overdose on Prozac? People try to kill themselves. I don't, with I don't know. I've never heard about it. Okay, well, let's not I find once, out. I once had a crisis call. Somebody took 30 Tylenols, but she, she got her stomach pumped and survived. But, um, yeah. Hmm. Okay, yeah. well, I'll make a note of that and do some more research later. <laughs> So I did go ahead and look this up after the interview with Dr. Weimer, and as it turns out, you absolutely can overdose on Prozac. So like pretty much any psychiatric medication, Prozac needs to be used carefully. Um, if you are feeling as if you may want to abuse Prozac in order to harm yourself, please, please, please reach out to your doctor and talk to them about adjusting your medications or changing your treatment plan. What are some of the best resources for people who are looking for that legit info so they can inform themselves? experts you know pe people who have doctorates you know and people and, such uh, as yourself yes yeah yeah except i mean dr phil is an expert but he's an entertainer you have to realize some people are entertainers dr phil is an entertainer he is not mm -hmm. out to help people he's out to entertain people right so um the the american psychological association that's a good resource apa's website ap i believe it's apa.org uh the american counseling association's website um the you know the, the I think it's the NASW National Association of Social Workers. So professional organizations. Um, oh, Monitor on Psychology, APA's magazine, the Monitor on Psychology, very, very good resource. And you can get that for free online. All right. You can you yeah. can uh, get a PDF of it for free online. So those are, you know, anything that's evidence based. Mm -hmm. It's evidence based rather than anecdote based, you mm -hmm. know, and it's um, created and written by people who know what they're talking about and not just somebody making a tiktok video <laughs> you know sure. what i mean St if you want legitimate information stay the hell off social media you mm -hmm. know do not go to social media for legitimate information i am immediately skeptical of anything that's on tiktok or youtube mm -hmm. i'm like immediately skeptical if anything is on tiktok or youtube so 
Well, let's shift gears just a little bit. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your creative endeavors. Uh, in addition to psychology, you yeah, have yeah. a strong interest in science fiction and fantasy right. universes. And I was kind of curious, so when you're writing a book or a short story or whatever, do you think that your background in psychology influences the type of characters you create? Has it informed your narrative style or anything? Yes, it, it definitely does, Hunter. So uh, my first novel is called Cetopia. It's unfortunately, it's out of print now because uh, one thing I'll say is that I love to write but I hate the, dealing with the publishing industry. Yeah. <laughs> the publishing industry is is horrible. And um, the, par partially because nobody buys books anymore. And so, yeah. um, you know, my, my publishing company, unfortunately, Double Dragon Publishing, they were called, they went out of business. Mm -hmm. And so my books are now out of print, unfortunately. But I still, I own the rights again. I obtained, the, I uh, got the rights back. So I could submit them somewhere else, my novels. Okay. But, uh, but anyway, so... My first novel, um, the idea for it came to me from a series of nightmares that I had while I was in the Army. Okay. So when I was in the Army, I had a severe shoulder injury. It's why I was medically discharged. So I was mm -hmm. honorably discharged for medical reasons. I tore my left biceps tendon. Ouch. The Army. It actually wasn't that. It just it felt like a noodle going up my arm. It actually wasn't that painful. Really? But, uh, okay. But um, some, some aspects of it were painful, but uh, like the rehab and stuff. Yeah. But anyway, um, so but I, I had this recurring nightmare that I was being eaten alive by a shark. <laughs> and that nightmare, I turned it into this novel. Right? But my main character in the book, his name is Jonathan Breyer. He has bipolar, too. He has hypomanic episodes. Right. So, um, so I use my um, knowledge of treating people with bipolar, too, to kind of incorporate that character. Another character, um, Dr. Brendan Kim's one of the in the second book, he has PTSD because he almost dies in the first book. And so um, another character uses a hologram to do basically expo uh, prolonged exposure therapy, which is what you use for people with PTSD. So they recreate, they use holograms to recreate the trauma, tra the traumatic experience. So I definitely uh, incorporate my mental health, um, you know, background, my psychological background, also just my personal background, because basically I write fiction as a way to cope with my own depression. You know, and that's one of the reasons why I, I I still love to write. I write stuff all the time. If you're an artist, you can never stop creating, right? Agreed. But uh, I I stopped publishing stuff because dealing with the publishing industry actually. So the reason why I write is to cope with my depression. Dealing with the publishing industry was making me depressed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. um, so that's why I kind of stopped publishing. But I have tons of unpublished unpublished stuff. But uh, another thing, I, I had a horror story, a, a ghost story that I wrote called Legbone. It got accepted by a horror magazine. And then before mm -hmm. it got published, the magazine went out of business. So I have, this, no. I have this curse where like stuff is always published. And then the entity that publishes it goes out of business, right? Yeah. So um, I've kind of been snake bitten with that. But the long, short answer or long answer to a short question. But to sum up, yes, very much so. Very much so. <laughs> very interesting. Have you ever thought about self-publishing? Um, I have. Um, it's a lot of work. The, an advantage of the publishing company that I had is they they had an in-house artist. I thought I think the cover oh. art was was great. You can you can actually yeah. look up the cover art for my books. You've probably seen it online. Yeah, you can look it up on Google Image or something. But um, I would have to pay for cover art if I self-published this. 
and it's since hardly anybody buys books anymore, like my grand total of royalties I made from my novel, I spent a year working on my novel and I made maybe $150 in royalties from it. So it's yeah. like a year, a year of work for $150. It's, <laughs> I, mean, I don't like to think about things in terms of monetarily because I, I, I write because I like it. Mm-hmm. But still, it's just it's just not a worthwhile investment. And I'm so incredibly busy yeah. and all those things. But it is, um, you know, you know where I use my creativity is as a teacher, you know, coming up with class activities. But I think it's it's very important for people to utilize their creativity, you know, and I think it's wonderful that I have a career that allows me to be creative, you know. Yeah, this is, uh, this kind of just called to mind something interesting to me. I was having a conversation with a friend recently, and uh, she had gone through some really, really intense traumatic events. And her self-care strategies that she primarily puts in place are things that distract her, like things like knitting or cooking or something like that. Distraction techniques. Yes, exactly. Distraction techniques. And I was wondering, you know, so we were talking and she was saying to me, you know, I'm doing all this stuff. It's helped to an extent, but I still have all of this intense trauma that I'm trying to work through. And my response was, have you tried like a creative outlet where you're doing a little bit more engaging? And I'm no therapist. I wasn't trying to, you know, but I was, it just came to mind for me. Like, do you ever work on creativity or creative projects to process and actively work through those. Do you think that could be a good strategy for some people or yeah. did I just re-traumatize my friend? No, no, not at all. But <laughs> I think it um I think it can certainly help, but it's not a panacea. It's not it's not a cure-all. I mean basically uh, from my own trauma, I mean I've been diagnosed with PTSD from the stuff that happened to me as a kid. You know, my parents used to attack each other with knives and things like that. I mean, I had yeah. a lot of really crazy stuff happen when I was, sorry to use that word, but a lot of um, problematic stuff happened to me when I was a kid. But anyway, so I know from my own experience, you can't outrun trauma. Mm-hmm. You have to face trauma. And uh, that's uh, the reason why I went to see that therapist who just talked about my diet was to to talk about my childhood trauma. But he just wasn't, He whenever I tried to talk about my childhood trauma in session, he would change the subject to something <sighs> superficial, you know what I mean? But anyway, but the thing, because I know, I, I know enough about the field to know that my PTSD will never go away unless it's treated, unless it's overtly treated. And the way to treat it is to have you either through imagery or through virtual reality or something is to to re, re-experience it and just reduce your fear response. Oh, right? man. It's the fear response. So yeah. you need to have a professional help you with it. And um, so for me, it's like, as I get older and, um, you know, I can kind of cope with things better and stuff like that, but still, the, it's always this still there, you know, and yeah. it, it'll never fully go away unless I overtly do something about it, have a professional help, unless I get professional help for it. You know what I mean? Why do you think exposure therapy re-exposing for people who don't know basically let's say uh you're really paranoid about leaving your house so the first step would be leave your house and then yeah. sit with that in it's absorbing. like a vivo exposure yeah why is that helpful for people i i've done it and it's helped me yeah. and i don't know why <laughs> like um yeah i mean it's uh, i'll try to formulate a good response to this it's basically just reduces the fear response it's kind of like um getting into a swimming pool a little bit at a time you know what i mean mm-hmm. and you eventually you get used to the cold water and so um yeah it's just 
Uh, like, for example, I I'm, used to be a military psychologist, so I know a lot about PTSD with, with combat veterans. So um, there's, a, there's a lab at USC, Dr. Skip Rizzo. You can, uh, if you've never seen some of his clips on, online, I, I'd recommend looking at them. Dr. Skip Rizzo is his name. He runs a lab at USC that does virtual reality treatment for veterans for, uh, with combat-based PTSD. Yeah. And just um, being back in that combat, it's, if you, you know, nor if you're traumatized, you have negative associations with that in your mind, and it just kind of reduces those negative associations. So it's basically just behaviorism and conditioning. It's just yeah. kind of raw, just conditioning and deconditioning or extinguishing the fear response, you know? Yeah, like uh, Pavlov's dog kind of stuff like at, that yeah, exactly. at its most basic level right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. cool well thanks for explaining that makes sense yeah. with mental health treatment stuff should ideally be based in some kind of theory mm -hmm. you know you should have some kind of theory some rationale something systematic to guide what you're doing basically and when dr weimer says theory he means a scientific theory not yeah, well, something exactly. <laughs> not just exactly. something that like, someone um, came up with object relations or something the best yeah. therapist i've ever had it's a guy named Barry who I had in graduate school, and he was an object relations therapist. So that really worked for me. But it's wow. basically contemporary psychodynamic. Okay, very interesting. I have I actually am not familiar with that at all. I, I don't think I've heard of that. Do you want to expand a little bit, or is it? Sure, yeah. Okay. Um, there's many, many object relations um, theorists. My favorite one personally is Heinz Kohut, and it's basically about... Um, perceiving yourself and others accurately is the goal mm. so let's say you know i've done i've seen many clients who they get into a romantic relationship with somebody and instead of seeing the true person they see what they want to see in the person so object relations therapy is about becoming aware of that because psychodynamics is always about raising awareness and um just being able to perceive yourself and others accurately rather than in a distorted way mm. i mean that's a gross oversimplification but that's the basic premise behind object relations Gotcha. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that because I, I'm not familiar with it. No one's brought it up on this show so far. And I always love when we, we hear about new uh, theories or perspectives or whatever. So thanks a lot for that. I know you said that Prozac has been very instrumental for your treatment and your well-being. Do you have any other self-care strategies besides writing uh, that you use to kind of help work through things or remain at baseline? Definitely. Um minimizing screen time <laughs> and it's kind of ironic because i'm looking at a screen right now but that's yeah but I've, I've just noticed the more time i spend especially on friggin email right the more mm -hmm. time i spend on my computer the worse i feel the mm -hmm. more time i spend like like i actually i own a house I've, I've one of the best decisions i ever made in my life was i used to live in an apartment and i bought a house three years ago and it's nice. so much better my nice. experience is just so much better. And I, I I enjoy doing yard work. I enjoy mowing the grass, just getting out and being in nature, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I love hiking. I love camping. I actually just went camping last weekend. Yeah. Um. So I love hiking and camping. I've camped in all kinds of weather, cold, hot, you know, anything. Um. So I love to read actual books on actual paper. I love to read uh, books, comic books, and graphic novels. Yeah. Especially, I love, um, I'm a huge fan of uh, Moebius, this, I don't know if you've ever heard of Moebius, he's a, a French science fiction, his real name is Jean Girard, a French science fiction graphic novel writer, but yeah. I, I love reading Moebius's stuff, um, and Hodorowski as well, Moebius, anything that Hodorowski and Moebius did, but um, 
Let's see. Anything else? Those are the big ones. Music, too. I love going to see live music. That, to me, was one of the, the hardest things about COVID was not being able to see live music. Oh, my God. Tell like, me about I, it. Yeah, I yeah. saw a lot of concerts like on Zoom or whatever, but it's just not the same. It's just not the same for being yeah. there in person, you know? Well, that segues very nicely into uh, something that I also wanted to talk about, which is how you and I met and uh, a little bit about how this electricity got started, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, when I was, I guess I was 21 years old at the time, I enrolled in one of Dr. Weimer's Psych 470 courses. Mm -hmm. And during one of your lectures early on in the semester, you kind of offhandedly mentioned the band Opeth. Oh, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yep. sparked my uh that, that sparked my curiosity i was intrigued i was like okay who is this guy i need to go talk to him about heavy metal now yeah. um so when i was in your class it was a really trippy experience i was undiagnosed at the time and i just very vividly remember you were doing a lecture about bipolar disorder and the different types and i write about this in my book um, I call I call him Dr. Bachman in the yeah, book. Yeah. I, <laughs> uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so yeah, I, I, I love I love that part of the book. Yeah, man. I I had to give you a shout out in that book yeah. because it was like I was sitting in one of your classes one day and you were like, oh, like reduced need for sleep, overspending, drug abuse, et cetera, et cetera, and I, you were just going down this list, and I was like oh shit that's everything going on yeah, in my yeah. life right now it's even yeah. more than that teachers call that the medical student syndrome and somebody does but in your case it's legitimate you know yeah no it, and you met all the criteria yeah. i met all the criteria and the crazy thing is i ignored it i was like these are all major red flags i should be paying attention to this but after that class i was kind of just like fuck now what so i just went out and kept partying and uh i what i now realize uh in an, about october or november of that year i started entering hypomania mm. and after that point a uh, couple of months later it had graduated into full-blown mania and oh, psychosis okay. this was after this was like january of 2015 exactly yeah, yeah. yeah so uh anyhow one thing that i really remember about that class Class and that I think was really cool is that we got to do a presentation about Sid Barrett. Well, it was a really cool project that we got to work on. And I kind of found out that you also have an appreciation for Pink Floyd. So this has been a very long winded build up to my question. What is your favorite Pink Floyd album right now? Oh, boy. Um, I actually love I mean, I, I like everything except for the final cut i'm not a big fan of the final cut but i like i like pretty much everything up until that point i would say i uh, maybe wish you were here because i love shine on you crazy diamond yeah but, but, but i love um my favorite era of pink floyd is actually their early stuff yeah um uh, i really like adam hart mother i like a saucer full of secrets but i, I what i listen to most is live bootlegs yeah i mostly listen to live bootlegs uh, from the late 60s, early 70s. Any live Pink Floyd bootleg from like 68, 69, 70. There's one, I actually have it on vinyl. It's called Tonight Let's Make Love in London. Okay. There's only two tracks. There's Nick's Boogie and there's like a 16 minute version of Interstellar Overdrive. I really love that. I can yeah. even get the record if I can find it and bring it in and show it to you. 
but um so i have lots of pink floyd on vinyl i like to listen to vinyl nice but so basically any pink floyd lot they actually just came out with a with a new cd that was just dis- they just discovered the tapes it's called interstellar Fillmore. it's from san francisco like 1970 i just got that recently so i recommend that but i love any live album for the late 60s early 70s from pink floyd that's awesome man i love that and as a matter of fact um as I asked that question, I just remembered you you had gifted me a That's couple right. of I Pink Floyd bootlegs. Yeah, the ones I gave you are my favorite ones. They're dope. I uh, During my manic episode throughout the driving, so basically I went off on this psychotic, literally psychotic road trip, and um, I was listening to those bootlegs that you had given me at certain points during the trip, and I was like, I was like, this is getting psychedelic, and oh, yeah. that's a problem. I love the song Embryo because it's about being in the womb, you know, and it's like, I think that's really trippy. That song's really trippy. Yeah, I've been getting, uh super down with animals lately. Oh, I like that album a lot. Yeah, yeah, man. Uh, that has really been doing it yeah, for especially me Especially dogs. I love the first, I, I love the whole album, but... Really? Interesting. That's interesting that you like dogs because I actually don't care too much for that track. Oh, really? Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I saw Roger Waters perform it live, so maybe that's one reason. Yeah, that's cool. uh, One time I was listening to that song with my brother and his dog started flipping out with at the dog barking in the song. (laughs) It was kind of interesting, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, the production on that album is just incredible too. I mean, these are albums that you really have to listen to from like beginning until yep. the end so like with high quality headphones too yeah yeah it gets super trippy with it well dr weimer this has been an absolute pleasure we're right around one hour and um yeah. I, I know you said you've got about an hour that's fine i mean hey the, the eagles aren't on for another hour so the <laughs> eagles are on thursday night football right now when we're, as we're recording this <laughs> right on well, I just wanted to ask, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share? Is there anything that you're working on that you'd like to plug? Uh, any way people can find any of the research that you've conducted? Okay. Uh, well, I, I mostly conduct research on the psychology of men and masculinities, Division 51 of APA. Um, the most recent stuff I've published is in the Journal of Constructivist Psychology. But uh, I have... Um, um, the most recent one I wrote was a review. So in graduate school, my advisor was a guy named Dr. Ron Levant, L-E-V-A-N-T. He's one of the world's leading experts on the research on masculinity. And he recently wrote a book called The Tough Standard. And I uh, I did a review of The Tough Standard, and it serves as kind of an intro to research on men and masculinity. So that's the most recent thing that I've published. And that came out last year in the Journal of Constructivist Psychology. Before that, I wrote an article on Philip K. Dick, the science fiction writer. Yeah. And that was um, about his mental illness issues and and so forth and his amphetamine addiction and so mm-hmm. on. And so um, I, that, that was also in the Journal of Constructivist Psychology. But uh, to be honest, I've been just so friggin' busy over the last <laughs> few years. I mean, I write a zillion recommendation letters. My, the, I spent an inordinate amount of time updating my online courses, like content of like whenever the new um, edition of the textbook comes out. That's my big project now. So and my main goal now is just to get back to normal after COVID, you know, just kind of get back to baseline after COVID. So I don't really have a lot of stuff. I, I'm writing tons of creative stuff, but I'm not publishing any of it yeah. but maybe in the future. 
Well, yeah, but if you ever want, you know, this was really a cool experience. If you ever want to have me on again, I'd be happy to. I would be thrilled uh, to have uh, you back on. Uh, yeah. And I, uh, I know I was mentioning uh, when we first started, but I, I really do appreciate you taking the time to lend your expertise to this show. Uh, we have not had a full-fledged psychologist on the show just yet. Okay. So you're like the first professional, you know, subject matter expert who's been on to discuss these topics. And it's really helpful because although the pure perspective and the these more general conversations that we have are really enlightening and cool, it's interesting to hear from the academic side of things, the the hard science side of things. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. thank you so much for coming on. I, okay, I really welcome. appreciate it. And you're welcome back anytime. Okay, good. I'll end with this. The last thing of something I tell my clients a lot and students as well, it's important to focus on factors that you can control and to not worry about stuff you cannot control. I think that's, that's kind of, it's one of my life rules. So I just want to, want to end with that, if that makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. And thank you for that. It was such an honor to hear from Dr. Weimer on the show, and I do certainly hope we're able to get him back on again in the future. I can't tell you just how cool of an experience this was to not just be able to speak to someone who is an expert in the field of psychology, but a person who I have a personal connection with. I took his course, and during... <laughs> During those lectures, I, I started realizing, you know, something is starting to go very wrong in my life. Of course, his lessons didn't start sinking in until it was too late. But I recovered. I bounced back. I'm here now. As Bipolar Recorder continues to evolve, we will continue hearing perspectives from peers as well as professionals. If you're curious about some of the topics that Dr. Weimer mentioned, I've included links in the episode description so you can take a look. Remember that Bipolar Recorder can be found on Twitter at Bipolar Recorder. My book that Dr. Weimer mentioned a couple of times during the show is called My Brain is Trying to Kill Me and is available on Amazon in Kindle and paperback formats. Check it out if you'd like. Proceeds from my book sales help keep the show running. Also, be sure to support the show by telling your friends about it. Let's keep getting the word out about mental health and the outrageous, amazing, sometimes scary things that our brains are capable of. My name is Hunter Keegan. Thank you for listening, and have a great and safe day, evening, or night, wherever you are. Bipolar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting BipolarRecorder.com. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. 
bipolar recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.